We are uh, concluding our series today, Conflicts uh, at Christmas, and uh, it's been an enjoyable uh, month for us uh, here uh, to, to dive into the Christmas story and see the different things that arise throughout Scripture, the different conflicts that take place that maybe we didn't even think about all that much. Today we're going to deal with the conflict that took place uh, between humility and, and pride. And we might not think about it all that much in Scripture, but it's there as we look at it. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, a vice which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves, and that is pride and self-conceit. He adds that all other sins are mere flea bites. I love that. In comparison to pride. He says... Pride leads to every other vice. And I agree with that. At the core of every sin is our pride. We are basically saying, God, we know better than you, or we choose better than you. We are going to willfully do what you have told us not to do. And I think that's absolutely true. That pride is the root cause of it. It was the cause of the rebellious angel Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. Pride is what caused the fall in the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. The serpent said, you can be like God. You can know the difference between good and evil. And so the prideful side of them says, I want some of that. Pride is the source of most of our problems as well. Proverbs 29, 23 said, pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. I started to tell that first story about Kendall and really zing him with it, but I thought, no, my ego is going to uh, lay aside for a minute and uh, let's just make this more about me, beat me up a little bit uh, this morning. But we hate to admit it, right? We hate to admit it that even in the meekest of Christian, even in someone who seems to have their act completely together, there's a little bit of pride in all of us. We have to battle with ego on a daily basis. And during the Christmas season, there's that inner conflict between humility and pride, and it, I don't know about you, but it seems to intensify even at the Christmas season. You think about it. You have this in your families. Which in-laws get the visit from the newly married couple on Christmas Day? You never had to think about that before, but now that you're married, you got to think about that. Sometimes that's a matter of pride. We get all been out of shape because they chose to go to the other side this particular day. Which single parent is going to get the child on Christmas morning? Who's going to give the gift that is appreciated the most? Who gets the most presents? Who gets the prize for the most impressive decoration? You know, the Clark Griswold Award. Who's going to get that? Who gets the most attention when the family gets together? You know, when, when some, somebody's got to be the the center of attention, and if somebody else is getting a little more attention than you are, what, how's that going to fall? Who gets invited maybe to the most prestigious party? You're at work, and you hear one of your co-workers gets invited to this party. You didn't get invited to this party, and we get all bent out of shape over that. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So today, I want us to see how these two things play out in the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can follow along on the screen or take your phone out. And we're going to see how this humility and how this pride is illustrated in the story of the Magi and King Herod. And this story represents a, a contrast, really, between a foolish king who is disgraced by his arrogance and wise men who are honored because of their humility. 
So we're going to see how this conflict is taking place also in our own lives as we look at this story. So follow along with me in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. Matthew chapter 2. Here's what it says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we, we have come to worship him. And we'll stop right there and see that the very first thing that we can see from this is that the wise men, even though they were very intelligent people, they were teachable. They weren't pompous and arrogant. Have you ever been around somebody that is just, they just think they're so smart and, and they're just so arrogant and they're not teachable at all? I remember one time we had a guy that used to go to this church years and years ago and he walked into our office one time and he just out of nowhere says, I can tell I'm the smartest man in this room. I'm like, okay, I'm, don't even ask me after the service, all right? He's, he's in heaven now with Jesus, I hope. Uh, that, that <laughs> I'm going to shut up about that right now. But anyway, here's the deal. We don't know exactly where the Magi came from. We don't know how many there were. We don't know exactly what they saw in the sky. We don't know exactly how long it took them to get there. But the one thing that seems very apparent in this story is that they were brilliant astronomers. They had an advanced understanding of the stars. And they looked up in the sky and they saw this, this star. And they're, they're like, this is different. There's something here that's not the same as it usually is. And we even still refer to them as wise men today a couple thousand years later because they followed the star. They, they looked at this and they're like, listen, this can, this can show us something. Dr. Craig Chester, president of Monterey Institute of Research for Astronomy, he wrote an article about this one time. And here's what he says. I want to read it so I don't get it wrong. He says, with computers, we can now reverse the movement of the stars and know exact, with exact certainty where the stars were located at the time of the birth of Christ. And he documents a, a series of fascinating events that took place down through the years. Um, and, and, and keep in mind that most intelligent people, far more intelligent than I, uh, they, they have said that our calendars are probably a couple of years off, maybe two or three years off. So keep that in mind as I share this. But he says, in September of 3 BC, Jupiter, the planet that represented kingship, came into conjunction with Regalus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo, which was associated with the Lion of Judah. So the royal planet approached the royal star in the royal constellation representing Israel, and the conjunction between Jupiter and Regalus was repeated not once, but twice in February and May of 2 B.C. Then he writes, in June of 2 B.C., Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest objects in the sky, other than the sun and the moon, experienced an even closer encounter when their disks appeared to touch. And to the naked eye, they became a single object above the setting sun. This exceptionally rare spectacle could not have been missed. By the Magi. Now that tells me that our God is so big and so powerful. And he knew what was going to happen before the world was ever set in motion. And he was able to align the planets and the stars to come at the right time of the birth of Jesus. 
right? The Bible says that at just the right time, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. So the fullness of time, all these things are happening. The stars are aligned. God has caused this to happen, and it shines right over a stable in Bethlehem. And it's intriguing to just think that centuries before Jesus ever came into the earth, God arranged the movements of the stars to precisely coincide with the birth of his son. What a coincidence, huh? Now we know better. And regardless of, 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 of how these, these wise men knew, they were obviously scholarly men. And they, they see this star, and, and they know that something's different, and they weren't so pompous, they weren't so arrogant. They were still searching to learn more, and that's important. That's an, an indication of their humility. Another indication is that these wise men were wealthy, and yet they were spiritually sensitive. Remember when Jesus said it's harder for a rich person uh, to make it into heaven than it is for, or a, yeah, a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then he added, but this is, this is with man that is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And I think that affluence sometimes makes it more difficult for people to humble themselves and surrender their lives to Jesus. They have uh, increased opportunity to, to do things that are going to keep them from spiritual things. Oftentimes their worship is interrupted because of increased travel maybe. Or, or maybe we have this uh, idea that we can be self-sufficient because we have so much and so often when a person becomes wealthy or when they reach a certain level of status, they might feel superior and they feel no need of God. I heard a story about Carl Malone. I don't know if any of you are NBA fans, but Carl Malone, who played for the Utah Jazz back in the late 90s, early 200s, he, he lobbied for the opportunity to carry uh, the Olympic torch into the stadium in Salt Lake City, Utah, when the Winter Olympic Games were being held in Utah, but they denied him the opportunity to carry the torch into the stadium. However, they said, if you would like to, we would like for you to carry it someplace else along the journey. He said, I have no desire to run an Olympic torch across the desert somewhere for a tenth of a mile. See, he wasn't willing to just do it behind the scenes with no fanfare. He wanted to be the center of attention. He wanted to carry it into the stadium. He wanted everybody to go, ooh and ah, and that didn't appeal to him. And, and, and I don't know Carl Malone personally. I hope, hopefully he's got his life straightened out. I don't really know. But here's what Psalm 49.20 tells us. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. And these wise men, these magi, right, they were, they were wealthy, they were influential, but they had this humility about them that said, listen, I can learn more. They had this spiritual hunger. They didn't have this arrogant spirit. And I'm thankful for that. Another indication of their humility is that these wise men were from an advanced culture, but they were still interested in the things that were going on in another country. They were still interested in foreign affairs. They took great interest in a baby that was born in Israel. Now, Israel at that time in history was just, it was absolutely nothing. It was a second-rate group of people, and they were under the, subject, uh, the subjection to Rome. And so anybody from Israel, they didn't really give a hoot about. Most of the time, people in an advanced culture, they don't take a big interest in people who are in a culture who are less than them. You say, well, that's not right. 
But have you ever done something like this, something like I've done before? You hear of a train wreck that maybe took place in a foreign country somewhere, maybe somewhere like India. I remember that happened several years ago, and several people perished in a train wreck in India. And my first response were, well, praise God, there were no Americans on board. How stupid was I? How inconsiderate, you know, we think, we just think about ourselves. We just, we forget that those people in another country are just as valued by God as we are. And we say things like that. And these wise men, they say, we, we don't really care that it's in Bethlehem of Judea in a, for, uh, a forsaken land. We're going to go see what this is all about. And so they go to see the child. Another indication of their humility is that they were men. Now, don't laugh at this. They were men, and they didn't stop and ask for directions. They didn't, right? Or they weren't afraid to, I mean. They did. I'm sorry. I blew that. That was supposed to be really funny, and I blew that. Why is it they were men, but they did stop and ask for directions? They came to Jerusalem, and they say, we understand a king has been born. Where is he at? Now, most of... Most of you women, you probably don't understand why that's so hard for us to do. Why is it that when we're lost, it is tough for us to maybe, back in the old days before GPS, some of you are old enough to remember that, you'd pull into maybe a gas station, you go in and ask for directions. Why is that so hard? Why don't we like to do that? I think it's a problem of ego. I think it's a problem of a lack of humility. It's so hard for us to go up to a complete stranger and say, I know you know more than I do. Will you please help me get to my destination? It's tough for us to do that. I heard one time that Daniel Boone asked if he'd ever been lost. He replied, no, I've never been lost. But i got to admit, I was confused once for about three or four days. And, and, and just so arrogant, you know. I read on Facebook the other day this question. What would have happened, work with me on this, had there been three wise women instead of three wise men? Buckle up. They would have asked for directions sooner. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, clean the stable, and given practical gifts. Can I get an amen? Right? That, that's feminist arrogance right there. That's what that is. Now, these men, they stop and they ask for directions. They didn't care. And yet I think with all of these other things that we've talked about, I think that their humility was best evidenced by the fact that they were mature adults and yet they worship a little child. Think about this for a second. Verse 11, they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I can imagine sometimes political leaders of one state, they find it difficult to follow protocol when they visit another high-ranking official in another country with some, some countries. I'm sure that's difficult, but these Magi were worshiping not another mature, dignified king, but a small child. And they weren't worshiping a king that had a royal lineage. They were worshiping a king that came from peasants. And they weren't worshiping a king in an ornate palace. They were worshiping a king in a barn, in a manger. That's humbling, guys. 
You think, picture this for just a second. I just kind of picture these, these kings, these magi, these wise men. They're all decked out in their royal garb. they got these big crowns on top of their heads, and they've got these expensive gifts that they brought, and they've got a number of attendants, and they've got all these camels and other animals, and they walk in, and they fall on their faces, and they worship a baby. Notice also that a significant part of their worship was bringing a generous gift. They bowed and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now when we think of worship, we think of singing, and we think of saying prayers, and we think of taking communion, we think of listening to a sermon. But the very first mention of the word worship in all of the Bible... Abraham was going to take his son Isaac. Remember that story? Going to take him up to Mount Moriah and offer the most precious thing that he had. And he said, I'm going to go up and worship God. And here, the very first mention of worship in the New Testament was when the wise men came from afar and they offered their gifts to the Christ child. Listen, if nobody invites you to their house for dinner, uh, <laughs> That's okay, but if they do, here's what I would recommend, especially, you know, because sometimes we get invited to go places that we don't really want to go. Has anybody ever been there? Oh, oh, two of you? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, I know better than that. A bunch of room full of liars is what we got here. We've all done that, right? But, but take, if you're in, you find yourself in that particular situation, you know, maybe you take a gift because you want to show appreciation. You want to show respect. And a part of our worship of God is to bring Him something, to give Him something. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of appreciation. God has given us so much. And we want to say, we respect you, God. We want to share with you, God. We want to honor you, God. This is why it says in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29, Give to the Lord the glory He deserves. Bring your offering. Come into His presence. Worship the Lord in all His holy splendor. And so genuine worship is humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging that he's the ruler all over all of us and everything that we have belongs to him. Now, in stark to the humility of the wise men, we see the arrogance of King Herod. We see the egotism. And here are some indicators of that. Matthew 2, 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Now, what did, had he heard? He had heard that a king had been born unto the Jews, right? He, and, and everyone in Jerusalem was upset about it as well. Now, why was Herod so paranoid about the birth of a Jewish king? Certainly wasn't because he was concerned about his people. He didn't give a hoot about his people. Right? He oppressed them. It certainly wasn't because he was concerned about the fact that if there's another king out there, my sons might not inherit the throne. He didn't care about his sons even. One historian described him. Herod was a tyrant. He was cruel. He was morally bankrupt and greedy. He was more of a mafia kind of person than he was a king. He often resorted to murder to eliminate his opponents or his critics. He even murdered his own wife and even three of his sons. The joke in Rome was it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than it was to be his son. Why was he so disturbed? Why was he like this? It was because he saw everybody as a threat to his power. You see, pride is always, it's always competitive. The ego derives self-worth not from accomplishing something but from accomplishing something better than someone else did it. Have you ever noticed that? We're not satisfied with the fact that we've done something. 
We want to do it better than somebody else did. And anyone who poses a threat to what we see as something that brings value to us, we get all upset over that, right? Remember, remember. all right, we got the kids in here today. You kids have been great. Bear with me. I know I'm not Lauren, but I'm working on it, okay? We're, we're, well, that sounded weird, didn't it? All right, so I'm working on getting better at talking to you kids. There you go. So this is for you. Remember in the fairy tale Snow White when the wicked queen would ask the mirror who's the fairest in the land? Remember that story? And she was content as long as she was number one. But when the mirror said Snow White's the prettiest, there's a new number one, she got all upset. Now, the queen wasn't any less attractive than she was before. Just because Snow White was prettier didn't mean she was now ugly. But she couldn't tolerate the fact that someone else was better than her. And that's what we do a lot of times. This is what King Herod was doing. Think about how silly that was. Historians calculate that Herod was probably in his late 60s at the time. And if this was true, by the time this baby grew up to be king, it was going to take another 20 to 30 years before the child would be mature enough to take the throne. That means that Herod would have been about 90 to 100 if he lived that long. What's he worried about? He didn't care if his sons was going to take over or not. But his competitive pride made him deluded. He thought he was invincible. He didn't even know he was going to be dead in a couple of years. Pride is often deceptive. Verse 4, he called a meeting, this is Herod, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In other words, where is this Messiah supposed to come from? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet wrote. Verse 7, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child and when you find him, come back and tell me Wink, wink. So that I can worship him too. Pride is not only competitive, it's deceptive. Proverbs 28, 13 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they'll receive mercy. You see, humility is transparent. Humility just says, this is who I am. If you don't like it, you know, that's between you and Jesus. Humility says, I made a mistake. But pride, man. Pride is very guarded. It's afraid to be open. It's afraid that people will see me for who I really am. And if they see me for who I really am, they might not respect me. They might not like me. I might lose my influence. And so pride fakes it. Let me give you an example. This year at Spire Conference, I got on a crowded elevator at the Opryland Hotel. I needed to go up to the fourth floor, uh, and I get on the elevator, and the fourth floor is, is lit up. It's the only one that's, that's lit up, and so we start our ascent up, and, and it stopped on the third floor to pick somebody else who was going up, but as soon as the doors opened up, I assumed it was the fourth floor, and so I got off. I was five steps off the elevator and suddenly realized, this is not my floor. This is not the fourth floor. This is indeed the third floor. But you know what I did? 
I walk down the hallway like I own the place, right? Like, like, like I, I don't care. I walk like I was supposed to be there. I couldn't just turn around and admit I got off the elevator on the wrong floor because there was an elevator full of people. They're going to think, who is this knucklehead that is getting off on the, on the wrong floor? And so I couldn't say I made a mistake. Guys, can I get back on? I walk down the hallway and go to the stairway and walk up and get off the on the fourth, open the door, only to see those people getting off the elevator. Don't you love the way God works? He just, he just has a way of getting us right there, right? But here's what we do. We wear a mask. We act like we've got it all together. We don't want people to see our mistakes. We try to impress people. Have you ever noticed that our behavior and language at church is distinctively different than our behavior and language at the Christmas party? Got real quiet there. <laughs> Herod faked it. He pretended to be spiritual. He manipulated the situation. Hey, you go find the Messiah. Come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. But what he was trying to do was he was trying to advance his own agenda. Verse 12 says, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. By the way, there's another example of their humility. The wise men obeyed the word of God. They didn't say pridefully when God spoke to them. They didn't say, don't worry about it, God, I got this. They listened. And they did what the word of God told them to do. Verse 13, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. It's interesting <clears throat> that as soon as Jesus was born, he was hated by some people. He brought division and he brought controversy to some people. He didn't bring peace to everybody. And we're still seeing that in a battle over him today. There are still some who strenuously object to the Bible teaching that Jesus is the King of Kings. That Jesus is the only way to get to God. It's not of our own efforts. Jesus paid the price for us on the cross. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for they are dead. Pride ultimately is vindictive. Have you noticed that? Our good old stinking pride, we just want to get people back. We have this dirty, hairy mentality in our society today. Herod couldn't stand the fact that somebody else was going to be king, and so here's what he did. And, and for all the little ones, I didn't even think about the little ones. being. I'll try to... I'll try to PG this up a little bit, and so King Herod, he decided to dispose of all of the kids two years and under. It was much worse than that. And the Bible says that Ramah was weeping. The crying was heard in Ramah. Now, Ramah to Bethlehem is kind of like Ogleville to downtown Columbus, right? It's kind of like an area, and, and so Herod must have made this huge circle going around outside of Bethlehem 
and taking care of all of those born under two, all of those under two years old. And that's why there was so much crying. And that impacted a lot of families. If, if, you're, if you're here today and you have a child under two, or maybe you can remember having a child under two, or maybe you have a grandchild under two years old, would you just raise your hand? Anybody? Now look around the room at all the hands that are up. Keep your hand up there. Everyone that has had. Now you think about. The number of people in that community with all of those two years old and under and the wailing and the bitterness and the anger in this entire region all because of one man's ego. Unchecked egotism can reach the point where the feelings of other people don't matter at all. As long as self is served. I always think about, you guys remember um, the Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan incident? Anybody old enough to remember that? Go, back, go look it up if you haven't seen it. Remember Tanya Harding couldn't stand the fact Nancy Kerrigan was probably going to win and she wasn't going to. And so in an effort to try to get, a hold of, get ahead of the competition, she hires this guy to, to walk by and, and whack her on the leg, on the kneecap with a, with a lead pipe. Right? True story. Crazy. I don't understand that. I don't understand egotism so bad that you're willing to hurt somebody else as long as self is being served. I don't understand why terrorists would get any satisfaction out of taking innocent lives. And when the ego is wounded, it often lashes out in horrendous ways. And so I... I encourage you all, keep the ego in check. Because if not kept in check, it can become hateful. It can become vindictive. C.S. Lewis said, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Now, there's one overriding principle that I want you to learn. And it's this. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before God. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time He will lift you up in honor. Do you believe that this morning? Humble yourself. Believe in the Christmas story. We began this series of sermons by talking about belief versus skepticism, that conflict that exists. And, and it's difficult sometimes to believe in these supernatural events, right? The incarnation, the, the, the special star, the, the virgin birth, the appearance of angels in a sky full of angels. Listen, you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe in those things. But what you do have to do is lay your pride aside and say, I'm going to investigate. And you have to walk by faith, not by sight. Because not everything about God is going to be proven to you. The only time you're not going to need faith is when you pass from this life and you see Jesus face to face. 
But I would encourage you like these wise men, be humble enough to believe that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A couple verses later in John 3, 18, there's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Be humble enough to believe and be humble enough to worship Christ the Lord. You know, as our worship team comes, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's so easy to ooh and ah over a baby born in a manger and the celebration and get all excited about Christmas. But it's another thing to humble yourself and say, God, I commit to you. I submit to you all things. My very life, I give you myself. As Dave mentioned in our communion meditation, that's, that's why I came. He sacrificed himself for us. And so what that might mean for us today is for those of you who don't know Jesus, maybe you need to make that decision today to humbly submit yourself to him. But for those of you who do know Jesus, that might mean instead of getting your feelings hurt because your daughter-in-law has stolen your son away, took him to the in-laws for Christmas, what can I do to make their day happier? What can I do to make it more special? Instead of asking who gets the kids for the holidays this year, Ask yourself, what would be best for the kids? Instead of complaining you weren't invited to the party and making the host feel terrible after it's all over, swallow your pride and say, I hope you guys had a wonderful time. Instead of resenting your relative who gets all of the attention at the family get-together, humble yourself. And you laugh and you boost him up too. If someone gets a nicer and more expensive present, don't pout. Don't nurse your wounded ego like a little child. You grow up and you rejoice with those who rejoice. If someone interrupts your Christmas tradition, you go with the flow instead of demanding that your schedule be met. If you get off an elevator on the wrong floor, turn around and go back in. It's all right. Not that big a deal. Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So humble yourselves before God. Submit to Jesus. To his sacrifice for your soul. I think that's the reason why the Lord asked us to be baptized. Because being baptized is a humbling thing. It's not a humiliating thing. It's a humbling thing. Where we surrender ourselves to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I, I just got to admit, I, I've never been a big wrestling fan, but I just, this past week you might have seen it on social media as well, where legendary wrestler Hulk Hogan was baptized into Christ. Yeah, wow, right? Like, this is the guy that comes out hollering, urgh, urgh, you know, all this kind of stuff, and, and he's like, him and his wife gave their lives to Jesus and were baptized. Someone that boastful appearing that boastful, someone appearing to be that arrogant said, I'm laying down my life now to live for you. If a guy like Hulk Hogan can do it, I, what? He's holding you back. Hey. 
If you have a need today, we encourage you to come, whether it's a first-time decision or maybe it's a public confession of faith. Maybe you want to become a member of our church. You've already been baptized. You need a church home. Whatever it might be for you, we encourage you to come. Let's, let's pray together.